Hello, and welcome to Movement Matters, what I'm calling a forced perspective of New Testament restoration. My name's Steve Carr, and I'm glad that you came across this podcast. Maybe you found this because you saw on my website the curriculum for Movement Matters. What this is is a curriculum that I created for people to learn about the Restoration Movement, what is an obscure uh, 19th century uh, Second Great Awakening movement of churches. Uh, So maybe you found it on my website uh, through the internet, or maybe you just happened upon a podcast search and you found Restoration Movement and you were curious to hear about this. However you found it, hey, Just glad that you're listening in, but I do want to tell you is that this is designed to be part of a broader curriculum for you to be able to learn about the restoration movement. I was going to put all this into a book, but I know that people's consumption habits are always changing, so I just wanted to make it as accessible as possible. But what I've done is provided online for free a bevy of resources that you can use in this study. So I advise you to go to my website. That's houseofcar.com, houseofcarr.com slash movement. House of dog. One more time for the people at home. Houseofcar.com slash movement. And when you go there, you can download free resources, including the very study notes that I will use to guide this podcast conversation. There will also be some articles there for application. Um, And if you want to teach this to a small group of people, there are discussion questions available for you to use. I've also included some resources, pictures I've took at some restoration movement sites. Hey, this is a resource for you. I put it in podcasts because I know some of us are wired to listen to this while we're in the car or out for a walk. So uh, use this, especially if you're going through a self-study, but if you want to lead other people through it, houseofcar.com slash movement, and you will be able to find this. What I've done over the course of years of study of the Restoration Movement, I actually, at a uh, Christian college, was one of the teachers of uh, Restoration Movement history, so I've been a student of it. That is not my primary focus of expertise, but I'm interested in it because I'm a son of the movement. Over years, I have developed this content. Why it was important to me is I often found myself teaching restoration movement to history to people that were not part of the movement. And my intention was always, how do you take something that I'm interested in and make it interesting for them when they have no necessary interest in this subject? So this is what I have developed over years. And finally, I've come up, come up with this, which is seven lessons, seven lessons to show why the movement matters. And uh, that's the introduction here to where we are going to go over the course of the series. But you are actually at lesson one, and I begin, I call this a forced perspective of the New Testament restoration. I say it's a forced perspective because I'm trying to be tongue-in-cheek, because each of the seven lessons are of a force that I think has made the restoration movement what it is. That's where we're at here in lesson one, the force of framing. In part one, when racists feel empowered. So we're going to begin a study on the restoration movement. We have to determine where we're going to start, and I would like to start this examination with baseball. With baseball. Maybe you're a fan, maybe you're not. But it's interesting because 
Baseball was invented about four decades after the Cane Ridge Revival. And you can go ahead and Google. This is probably the seminal moment within the history of the Restoration Movement. The Cane Ridge Revival in 1801 took place in central Kentucky. We'll talk more about this throughout the series. But baseball was invented about four decades after that revival. Abner Doubleday is credited with inventing it. You know, if you go to Arlington National Cemetery, I was walking through uh, Arlington on a trip to D.C. one time, and I was able to find that's where Abner Doubleday is buried. Now, most historians really think that's part of mythology. We don't know exactly where baseball started. We don't know when it started, but regardless of its origins, baseball became an undeniable force in the United States. It was a byproduct of American innovation. The game transcends mere sport, and really it became a movement. And if you look and maybe you're a Field of Dreams person with James Earl Jones' deep, booming speech voice where he talks about the changes throughout our country's history, but baseball has always been there. It was adopted by the 19th century or heading into the 20th century. It became America's national pastime. Now, both baseball and the Restoration Movement have strong roots in my hometown, the city of Cincinnati, Ohio. And maybe that's a reason why I really appreciate Restoration Movement history, because Cincinnati was a very influential city in the Restoration Movement. But even beyond that, after the American Revolution, even up until the Second World War, Cincinnati was a massively influential city. By 1850, it was the sixth largest city in the United States. And it was Here in my hometown that the Red Stockings of Cincinnati became the first professional baseball team in 1869. Uh, So, as I mentioned, baseball takes root here, and then also the restoration movement takes root here. There's many gatherings and debates. Parachurch organizations select a headquarter here in Cincinnati because of its influence. So we take that time, we fast forward a few decades, and we arrive at a time of prosperity for both the movement of baseball and the restoration movement. As baseball was reaching its peak popularity, you had Babe Ruth leading the Yankees to their first championship and simultaneously christian churches which somehow churches in the sometimes churches in the restoration movement are called christian churches they were gaining influence and were very populous here in cincinnati spring of 1924 and the front office of the club now known as the cincinnati reds received a letter now this isn't peculiar in of itself The Reds were one of the most popular entities in the city. They received tons of letters all the time. But this letter contained a special request, a request for a day at the ballpark. What was really surprising about this, though, was the nature of the request. In his hands, the general manager of the Cincinnati Reds held a letter from a representation of the KKK. Yes, The Ku Klux Klan was asking for a special day of recognition for their quote-unquote club. 
So the letter has been archived. So that's why we know about this. We can actually read the text of the request in the letter. It says, and this is a quote, I am sure that I need not remind you that this request comes from one of the city's fastest growing organizations. And the letter went on to ask if the Reds would special would recognize the clan on a special day it continues here it says our plan for the day if the privilege is granted would be to present a special bouquet to each of the managers of the two teams and a bouquet to each of the members of the two teams thus making no distinction and discriminating against no individual so that is straight from the letter. So if you understand this request from the KKK is saying, look, even though we are an organization that happens to hate black people, we're going to give bouquets, flowers to both teams. So it's not like anybody will be singled out in this process. I will say that nothing says white supremacy like handing out flowers to baseball teams. Anyways. So even though this was the 20th century, earliest part of the 20th century, there was societal racism. We're starting to become aware of that, and uh, it existed even then. Now, as a native Cincinnatian, I'm sad that even my city has a checkered racial past. We're in a time where people are starting to question again, uh, and rightly so, this idea about existence and race, and it's sad to think that there is a past that just taints everything about our society. Now, I will say that much of the growth of Cincinnati in the first century was due to its geography. So even though it was a free state, it benefited greatly from the slave labor that exists just across the Ohio River. Freed blacks in Cincinnati in the early years, I've actually done research on this, uh, could sometimes be kidnapped and sold into slavery, transported across the river. This city had uh, issues of race riots, and sometimes when we conceive of race riots, um, we think within 20th century parameters. But back in the 19th century, race riots were whites going to black neighborhoods and burning them to the ground. Some of us, naively, think that the Civil War solved institutional slavery, but really, even though that was solved, it still led to an increase in racism. And that's why the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, started in the South. It was after the Civil War. Now, it existed and grew, but declined in the late 19th century as Jim Crow laws were passed, these laws to limit African Americans. Yet when summer Southern blacks then started to leave the South and go North because they were tired of the Jim Crow laws, they were looking for opportunity in Northern cities, there was an influx of black residents into Northern cities, and believe it or not, it was at this time that the KKK actually took root in northern cities, even though it was a southern creation. So again, we return to the fact that a letter from a leader in the KKK to the Cincinnati Reds was saying, try to normalize this, allow us to have a special day at the ballpark. It'll, it'll be a great day of the giving of flowers and institutional racism. It'll be wonderful, right? But you can tell that this request was even at that time off the wall because the letter exists today. And I will tell you, just in case you're worried, the Reds denied the request. However, I focus in on this letter 
because you can still go ahead and Google it and see it online today. I've read it in its entirety. I pulled some quotes out right here. But one of the baffling things about the request is that it's printed on a church letterhead. And the letter on the letterhead show that it came from the Richmond Street Christian Church. Now, when I first saw this, I knew this church. It no longer exists, but it was a noteworthy congregation. It was one of the most significant churches in the Restoration Movement in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In the 50 years after the Civil War, Richmond Street Christian Church was at the center of the Restoration Movement's growth. In the 1870s, it spawned two of the most significant missionary groups in the movement, the Christian Women's Board of Missions and the Foreign Christian Missionary Alliance. A few years later, an affluent member of the church passed away, and the remnant of his estate became a fund devoted to starting restoration movement organizations. This fund was the Clark Fund, and it was headquartered at Richmond Street. And hence, it became the birthplace of numerous churches and camps and Christian publications. And from this church stemmed the Cincinnati Bible Institute, a ministry training school that would later become Cincinnati Christian University. The fund was later reestablished as the Christian Restoration Association, featuring the Restoration Herald, a historic magazine of the movement. So I just focused them because this same church— that produced so much good for the movement had, in the early 20th century, become a hotbed for the KKK. So much so that the church's minister was an Klan officer, and he is the one who wrote that letter to the Cincinnati Reds. Now, when I first read that letter from 1924, it jarred my senses. I took both college and graduate courses in Restoration Movement history. Only briefly did we ever discuss the issue of race. We, I don't think we ever discussed the KKK. But I found this letter not in a Restoration Movement publication, but on a sports website because they wanted people to see how crazy the times were that a baseball club once received a letter from the KKK. And this is what I had to grapple with. Is why. Why was this the first time I heard about it? Now to be fair. There are some who address the issue. Uh, one of my personal heroes. We'll talk about him uh, later in this lesson series. James DeForest Murch. He was an influential figure. In the early 20th century. In the restoration movement. He was an elder at Richmond Street Christian Church. He actually described in detail what happened with the infiltration of the KKK into that congregation. It was that the Klan started to spread among a few of the church leaders, and eventually it became so influential that it was almost part of the church's identity. They would host Klan meetings in the sanctuary of the Christian church. Now, there was a bold group at Richmond Street who eventually stood up to the Klan. They declared it evil. Those two sides fought, and eventually the conflict led to a church split. The non-KKK faction planted a new church that still exists today, but that racist remnant stayed behind. They struggled to keep the church afloat 
and financial hardships eventually forced the church to close. <laughs> I can't go on about Richmond Street Christian Church without noting this piece of irony. The next owner of the Richmond Street Christian Church was a black congregation, and they worshiped there faithfully uh, until the 1950s. Um, eventually, it was one of the black neighborhoods that was destroyed for the installation of the interstate highway system. So the state bought the building from the church. They tore it down on the property. The city actually built a park, and on that park, <laughs> there are now baseball fields. It's on the other side of downtown for me. I live on the east side. It's right over on the west side. So I go through that neighborhood quite frequently. And every once in a while, I'll stop by the old church site. Just until recently, they kept the old church steps uh, right there. They just really removed them in the last couple of years. But I go to that site, and I think about this story. And again, that's a pretty specific story, right? As you're getting this introduction to the movement, that was a pretty crazy way to start an examination of the restoration movement. But I start there because it's a little important for us to be able to admit. And um, this, for me, put me down a rabbit hole of study. See, I started to research the KKK and the restoration movement. And sadly, I discovered that the Richmond Street incident wasn't an outlier. In fact, it existed probably more broadly than we'd like to admit. I'll give you an example. One of the leaders at Richmond Street Christian Church was a man named George Rutledge. He was an alumnus of Milligan College in Tennessee. He was a well-known preacher and eventually an editor of the Christian Standard Magazine, one of the main magazines, a flagship publication among the Christian churches. He later became the very first president of Pacific Christian Seminary, which is known today as Hope International University. Yet throughout his professional career, Rutledge identified as a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And according to one movement historian, he was actually a national officer in the Klan. I bring this up as his prominence makes it impossible to think that the Klan issue was unknown among our churches. In this era, members tried to make the Klan mainstream. These aren't the only incidents. There's people who went public about this. Restoration Movement churches knew that the KKK was gaining considerable traction in our midst. But somehow, decades later, those incidents are whitewashed. In fact, I read an article that was published just a few years ago that talked about some of the great people and the, the honorable men in our movement, and Rutledge was listed among them. And you may believe that these were just you know small outliers, but friends, I'm telling you, they were not. Proof of the movement's collection with the Klan is traceable in the Christian standard itself. In the 1920s, churches around the country would provide updates about their ministries. Multiple congregations boasted about their affiliation with the Klan. There was a restoration movement church in Indiana that was thrilled at a standing room only crowd of 600 people for a Klan rally that they hosted. And another Ohio church felt 
Their clan rally was one of the best events in the church's history. It was a service that was attached to a county-wide evangelistic effort, and they were overjoyed at the people who came to God because of this KKK rally. I start here because we can't fool ourselves. We had a clan issue in the restoration movement. So as the clan began to dissipate, so did its place in our churches. But it doesn't make it any less jarring because there was a clear pattern of tolerance for the KKK in the restoration movement. At best, this racism was confronted privately. But maybe at worst, it was overlooked. And that's the question that plagues me about all of this. Why didn't other restoration movement churches step up to confront these thoughts? And most importantly, why did we forget? Part two. Everybody's got a story to tell. This is why we need to examine the power of story. Now consider the massive influence that stories generally wield in our society. In 1999... Leonard Sweet, I enjoy his writings. He wrote a book called Soul Tsunami. And I remember one of the quotes there. He wrote, the future belongs to the storytellers. The future belongs to the storytellers. I I believe he was right. Recent decades have witnessed individuals, businesses, nonprofits devoting considerable resources into developing compelling narratives. I'm telling you, there's no force as powerful as a good story. Throughout human history, we've created stories and crafted narratives. We've used stories as a means of framing the past and influencing the future. Some believe that the scientific era, this rise of modernism and science, would nullify the impact of storytelling. But in reality, the exact opposite occurred. Stories, I would tell you, carry as much or even more influence than they ever have. Sociologist Nassim Taleb uh, wrote a book called The Black Swan. It's a good read, and in it he writes, Metaphors and stories are far more potent than ideas. They are also easier to remember and more fun to read. Ideas come and go. Stories stay. Now, Taleb isn't the only secular thinker to take this position on storytelling, right? Michael Covell observed, the human mind can store facts around narratives, stories with a beginning and an end that have an emotional resonance. You can still memorize numbers, but you need stories. Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach are cognitive scientists, and they admit that even though the mind can act rationally, it's persuaded by stories. They write, storytelling is our natural way of making casual sense of sequences of events. That is why we find stories everywhere. And even Nobel Prize-winning economist Daniel Kahneman wrote a great book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He recognizes the power of story in people's attitudes to make decisions, noting that no one ever made a decision because of a number. They need a story. For Americans, stories are used to define what it means to be a citizen of our country. Generally, these tales involve presidents and conflicts. So think about the narrative of the Revolutionary War. It frames our national passion for the cause of freedom. And in it, the actions of George Washington 
He was the one who set a path for humble servanthood. Later uh, in American history, Abraham Lincoln is the embodiment of American wisdom in trying circumstances. Fast forward to the next century, to the Second World War, uh, a conflict that displays a story that shows what's possible when we all unite under a singular purpose. American kids are taught U.S. history in school to help them develop civic pride. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's just American kids in school, right? That's something different altogether than we Christians. But, friends, even for Christians, story is intertwined with theology. The belief structure of the Christian faith is rooted in the stories of Scripture. A significant portion of the Bible is written in narrative form. The book of Genesis describes the creation of the universe with a series of stories. Our understanding of Jesus is based on story. Think about it. Three of the four Gospels emphasized what Jesus did more than what he taught. Ask the average Christian what their favorite part of the Bible is, and usually it's a story. Biblical stories are massively influential. They, they contextualize our walk with God. They're used as an inspiration for our personal journeys. And I'd argue that God understood our makeup, our, our, the very nature of humanity so well that he intentionally structured the scriptures to be in narrative form. Thousands of years after its writing, the Bible continues to be one of the best-selling books. And it influences not only Christians, but secular society as well. Friends, that's the power of good story. And I will tell you then that it makes sense that the Restoration Movement relied heavily on historical events in order to define itself. The storytelling patterns of the Restoration Movement parallel both those of United States in Christian history. Okay, Think about that. As, as Americans, we use history to become better citizens. As Christians, we use biblical stories to understand our theology. In the Restoration Movement, we've used historical events to explain our ideology. So when we teach about the Restoration Movement, we talk about its events. We talk about the Cane Ridge Revival. You know, it, That was our Garden of Eden moment, or it was the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We we discussed the journeys of Bart Stone and Alexander and Thomas Campbell, and those men serve as our, our apostles, or perhaps they're our presidents. It's, it's these stories that are intended to establish who we are in the movement and how we choose to live. But while stories have the power to inspire, hidden in them is the power to harm. You see, every once in a while, a story can take on a life of its own. Let me take an example from American history, okay? There's American folklore. There's stories of John Bunyan and or, Paul Bunyan and John Henry and Pecos Bill, right? These uh, tall tales were repeated on the American frontier to explain what it was like to live in the midst of this hardship and struggle. You know, that life is tough, but there are these other heroes who made it before us. They, they were these figures who shaped this new frontier, and they made it what it is, right? Some, some tall tales, like Johnny Appleseed or Calamity Jane, even contain some element of truth. But the sensationalization of these stories overshadowed their reality. What the stories did was create larger-than-life heroes that were essentially superhuman. And it ignores 
the essential aspect of our human experience are flaws. See, we don't like to dwell on our flaws, do we? It's, it's unpleasant. We do this in our stories. Many stories from our past ignore the events that actually happened. They put a, a spin on events to create a more sanitized, palatable version of history. And we still are culpable because we embrace those stories even when they're not entirely factual. So an example, the growth of America as we became a great nation, right? We tell of the individuals rising up against adversity to secure their freedom. But while there's some truth there, it overlooks some key travesties. It ignores the land expansion of the country that was committed by robbing Native Americans of what was once theirs. It conveniently avoids the economic growth of our country that was jettisoned by the economy of the southern states who made their money on the backs of slaves. We kind of ignore sometimes, right, that most of those early political leaders were all incredibly wealthy, right? So, you know, going into these points, this isn't fun, isn't it? That's why most of us prefer our Disney moving movies. They give us this happy Disney-esque ending. And this is why, friends, I mean, we're, we're moving someplace, so I'm, I'm glad that you've stuck with me. But it's something that we need to realize, friends, is that what this is is the trap of nostalgia. The trap of nostalgia. Research on human memory shows us that we think more fondly on our past than we actually should. Our thoughts today are often based upon distortions of past realities. I mean, in short, what really happened is not as rosy as what actually happened. There's a historian, Yuval Noah Harari, he's Israeli. He explains the danger of nostalgia. He writes that our ideas of the past can threaten our future because these ideas, they, what happens is we, we, we have those ideas in mind. We try to move beyond the past successes that we've had, but we just can't do it. We can't do it. And now it's not because we're actually failures, but it's that we have revised history and have forgotten the flaws in our own story. This is – Harari writes this, uh, that this is happening all over the globe. The vacuum left by the breakdown of modern happenings is tentatively filled by nostalgic fantasies of some golden past. Can I try one more time? Because that is chock full of wisdom. Harari writes – what is happening all over the world, it's a vacuum left by the breakdown of modern happenings that are tentatively filled by nostalgic fantasies of some golden past. Our misplaced nostalgia can actually derail what we're doing today. And I'm going to tell you, that's what I suggest has happened in America with our culture. It's how we remember things. Stephanie Kuntz wrote a book called The Way Things Never Word Were. One more time, the thing, the way things never were. 
and Kuntz provides extensive research that shows the trap of nostalgia. She focuses in on our view of the family unit from the 1950s, right? You know what that is? It's like the cleavers. It's a, you know, this nice mom and dad and kids, and every car has a white picket fence in a driveway. About this, Kuntz writes, like most visions of a golden age, the traditional family evaporates on closer examination. It's a historical amalgam of structures, values, and behaviors that never coexisted in the same time and place. It's a little deep, but in English, what she's saying is that our memory of how things used to be aren't actually a reflection of what they were. Our mind wants the past to be better than it was. Our thinking is, we believe that utopia existed once, so therefore we can recreate it. But here in my country, it's a great country. America is wonderful, but it was never really that great. You know, even, let me return to the baseball field, okay? Talk about the movement of baseball. Again, maybe you're a fan, maybe you're not. So many baseball fans are enamored by that black and white video footage of games of yesteryear. You know, the the stadia were full of well-dressed fans and suits and ties and, and, and fedoras. The players were larger than life. And when they take that view and compare it to today's game of owner lockouts and and drug controversies for players just to take the game seems lesser than it once was that's where i come back to that movie the field of dreams because it captures that feel for nostalgia baseball of the past seems superior than what it is today again i'm from cincinnati i'm a lifelong reds fan there's no team that will ever compare to the big red machine who won two world series in the 1970s and actually went to multiple world series they had two world series i will tell you that my life of baseball fandom was based on that success yet i was born between their two back-to-back championships you know the the only memories i have of this are from stories and newsreel but it still impacts how i view the game of baseball today so i'll tell you though much like the big red machine defines my baseball fandom the great stories from the restoration movement's past define my religious identity I think of the bravery of Barton Stone. I think of the brilliance of Thomas and Alexander Campbell. I think of the boldness of frontier preachers like Walter Scott and Raccoon John Smith. Their stories provided the context for my Christian worldview. These are the heroes that I long to be like. And that's why I'm telling you guys. Our issue in the Restoration Movement is that our story is flawed. It's revisionist history. We don't acknowledge the flaws in our own story. And proof of this is that incident at the Richmond Street Christian Church. Again, I didn't learn about that from any Restoration Movement history class. I found it on a sports website. I clicked on the article because it said Cincinnati Reds and KKK, and those are topics that you don't usually see together. But since a secular writer thought it so unbelievable that the Klan would be so bold to request a special day at the ballpark, I ended up reading the article and recognized that it came from a Restoration Movement church. And in that moment, I was flabbergasted and felt betrayed. I couldn't understand why this and other KKK stories were never told to me. Why couldn't we be honest about what happened in our past? Why were we afraid to deal with this lesson? 
And as I consider stories I've been told, I just they they're too pristine. Because when our stories omit aspects of our past, we deliberately deceive ourselves. Historians call this hagiography. It's adopting a view of the past that idolizes characters and whitewashes their thoughts, their faults. And again, it's not as if we in the Restoration Movement are alone in this. Baseball itself, it was segregated until 1947. You know, in American history, we have those events that I listed previous that we just totally ignore. And we do this even with the Bible in the New Testament church. We avoid the dysfunction at Corinth and Thessalonica and Laodicea. Listen, friends, a a flawed story can be fatal. When the story is wrong, the lesson is lost. It impacts our worldview, our beliefs, and that then impacts our actions. The story of a pristine past undermines a better tomorrow. We can't imagine the possibility of a brighter future when we're paralyzed by nostalgia. We're not going to be able to create creative solutions to our current problems with a story that ignores our flaws. We need stories that expose them and then redeems them as good. So as much as it pains me to say it, the Restoration Movement has been guilty in this place. We live out Yuval Noah Harari's movement of nostalgic fantasies of some uh, nostalgic fantasies of some golden past. We, we abandoned restoring New Testament Christianity for restoring the way things used to be a few decades ago. Look, I love the story of the Restoration Movement, but, but, this story of ours demands far more scrutiny than even the stories of the Bible. The truth of the Scripture is immutable. Immutable doesn't change, but the stories of the Restoration Movement—they are very mutable. They they change on depending uh, depending on who's telling that story, and what who telling the story is trying to accomplish. That's why we got to be aware. Poet Dean Young, Dean Young wrote a phrase. He said, "This is not the river. It's an explanation of the river that replaced the river." I think that's what we're doing right now, friends. We've made the movement. Something that the movement was never intended to be. And in order to fix the movement, we're going to have to admit that the story is flawed. Part 3. You Can't Handle the Truth. Now this isn't a call to burn restoration history to the ground. What I propose is solving our poor narrative by looking toward a better one. And more specifically... As people of faith, we hone in on the very best story. See, again, what we do is we go to the Bible. But even when we go to the Bible, it can trip us up as well because in some of our churches, we've been taught the Bible in a way that is, frankly, it's unbiblical. Now, in observing this, I'm not saying that those people are heretics. They've just succumbed to our human nature, our love for stories, stories that we sometimes create. See, we've seen that. Humans love to tell stories. We prefer for there there to be a protagonist, a champion that has impeccable character. We want want a hero to, to overcome adversity, but we don't want them to have too many personal demons. Right? This, this is, is changing publicly because there's this rise in storytelling of the anti-hero, right? That's why when you look at television, there's a Tony Soprano or Dom Draper or Walter White. But um, I think our preference is still not for the anti-heroes. We really want wholesome heroes, right? Look at American history again. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, they had this unblemished moral fiber, right? They, they served as markers for American greatness, our, our nation's capital is filled with statues and mon- monuments to their memory, memory and 
we always tell people, you know, they're on our money. We tell future generations to walk in their footsteps. But history has shown us that those characters are flawed. It's tough to swallow, but it's true. So now I ask you, think about how you were taught the Bible as a child. It likely wasn't much different. Growing up in my church, we used standard publishing Sunday school curriculum, right? Uh, for decades, as I'm, you know, the standard publishing was uh, the, the, the chief publishing house of the Restoration Movement, and their lessons were designed to help kids learn Bible stories and to live wholesome lives, okay? This was accomplished generally by highlighting the positive actions of biblical heroes. I remember those Sunday school lessons to this day, um, likely because of the flannel graph. But um, I was taught that we were supposed to be like these biblical men and women and, and, and to emulate them with the actions of my life. So like the lessons were, were to be persistent like Jacob or be brave like King David or be wise like King Solomon. Now, I understand why people and those lessons writers decide to present the Bible in this way. This is virtue-based virtue -based, uh, storytelling, right? It's prevalent in society even today, right? And the church copied this. It's this lesson that if Christians would just live more righteously, then everything, our nation, our world, everything would be better. But even though this is well-intentioned, this way of presenting Christianity isn't biblical. I'll tell you, in some instances, it actually counteracts the very message of the gospel, the Bible reveals that even the most virtuous characters lack moral consistency, right? They, they all are in need of redemption. So we look at Jacob. He was a liar. King David was a murderer. King Solomon, a philanderer. Okay, this flawed hero-centric thinking infiltrated the restoration movement story because in our history, we tend to highlight the good deeds of those massive personalities of our past. And as a result, we present them as saints. We elevate them to a position higher than they were. I've, I, I can't tell you how many times somebody has told me, well, how would Alexander Campbell have responded to this current event? But even asking that question reveals the flawed way in which we tell our story. The words of human leaders are not printed in red ink. They may have once been bold and insightful, but they were first and foremost human. And for too long, the Restoration Movement's story was based upon the brilliance of the saints, when in reality, it should have been a revelation of redeemed sinners. Acknowledging the flaws of our movement greats doesn't ruin our plea. I will tell you that it actually empowers it. It reflects a faithful understanding of the Bible. So let me explain what I would say is a, a simple framework of the Bible, right? That the Bible is not a story of heroes. It's the story of a singular hero. Jesus is the only true hero in the Bible. He was righteous. He gave everything. He is the one who redeems. When we make a case otherwise, we miss the point of the gospel. Now, the elevation of human heroes in any instance has the potential to lead us away from the good news of Jesus. It's a story that acknowledges that our flaws is the past toward the best possible future. That's the gospel. That is a great story. And I will tell you is that too often, that is a better story than how we have told the story of the restoration movement. So what I'd like to do, and this is my emphasis here, and I apologize that this will probably be one of the longer 
podcast episodes, but it's something that we need to grasp is that the restoration story, our perspective, needs to be revised. This is my better story. I would say that the restoration movement isn't a story of heroes. It's the story of a singular hero. Jesus is the only true hero of the restoration movement. He was righteous. He gave everything. He is the one who redeems. And when we make a case, otherwise we miss the point of the plea of restoration. Jesus taught his disciples there is only one who is good. So why have we strived so hard to protect the legacies of these leaders who went before us? Their lack of perfection doesn't nullify the plea that they preached. We can continue to respect their accomplishments. We can, at the same time, we acknowledge their sins. Accepting our forefathers' flaws really allows us to address our personal need for repentance. That, my friend, is why I start with the force of framing. And that's what we describe in the introductory video that you can find online at houseofcar.com slash movement. In that story, I talk about what a frame is, okay? What a frame does is it takes a broad story and it hones in it. It, it, it limits the story that we tell, right? That's what a frame does. It contains, okay? Too often, we have a story to tell that distorts events. You know, sometimes we get, we, we focus in way too small. Other times, we just focus in way too large on the story. And that's what we have to be careful, right, to do. Because we, we do not want to distort reality, but what we do need to do is admit that our story will not always be well manicured. There are skeletons in our closet. Yes, there are even clan robes in our closet. And in a time such as this, when Americans and people worldwide are reexamining their view of race and existence, that is one of the most embarrassing things we could admit. But friends... This exercise in transparency, opening up our seedy past, the reality is if we don't tell this story, somebody else will find it and tell us for us. So I go back to when I was even teaching restoration movement in a Christian college. I was teaching adult students, and they would often come into the classroom with no previous experience of the Ku Klux Klan. And the same way that I start off this Movements Matter series is how I would start off explaining them. I would begin with the story of Richmond Street. And the reason why I told that story is I wanted them to hear it from me and not from any place else so that I could let them know that our story is flawed, that we have baggage, but as is with all people of God, in Christ we find forgiveness. So we do this, and we frame this force in such a way not to inflict damage, but to grapple with our humanity. The point of the story, in fact, I would tell you that the story of history of the church is to admit that we desperately need Christ's grace in our lives. It's going to look ugly sometimes, but that's okay. 
Framing is frowned upon because there's tension in transparent stories. We prefer to tell them when they're simple, when there's a hero or a villain. When telling your own story, virtually no one believes that they're the villain. Instead, what we do is we oversimplify, we omit, we overstate aspects of the story to make ourselves the hero. And friends, even though there are some great things that happen because of the restoration movement, we are not the heroes. There is but one hero in this story. When Jesus is at our center, friends, the restoration movement becomes what it was intended to be. That concept, that means more than even you or I realize. So thanks for joining me for lesson one. Maybe you want to read a little bit more, see some thoughts about this so that we can reflect on the force of framing and how this makes our movement matters. If so, I remind you, go ahead, go to the website, www.houseofcar slash movement. There you can get the free resources you need. That's lesson one of Movement Matters.